This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. I'm here with my other half, the man, the myth, the legend, the oil god, Colin McClellan. What's up, man? What's up, man? Just sitting here eating some goldfish. That's a breakfast of champions. Yeah. The cannon's been giving us these snacks and animal crackers and goldfish. I feel like I'm back in preschool. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We don't have too many announcements today. One thing I'd like to say, you guys have been great about giving us ratings. We have a ton of, it's actually, we actually have all five-star ratings. Now, please, somebody don't go and give us a one-star rating just to ruin that. But if you give us some reviews, that helps with the algorithm for iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher and stuff like that. Helps us get more exposure. As of last week, what did we get up to? We were like number 40 on American Business News worldwide. Yeah, man. we've been just pretty cool. Yeah, we've been breaking into the charts. Got yeah. number 40 on Business News. Which like transcending just, out of oil and gas. Just like no, to put some business. context around that, Gary V's at number 10 in that same category. So yeah. it's been awesome. That's pretty cool. Thanks to everybody for supporting it. I don't think we have any other news. No, that's it, man. All right, let's roll right into it. Yeah. All right, so we are joined today by Thomas and Amy Henry with Unique Ventures. What's going on, guys? Great. Excellent. Uh, I see that goldfish is laced. (laughs) (laughs) I'm telling you, I'm not planning about eating goldfish. I got my mouth full of them right now. The goldfish are really, really good. (laughs) Surprisingly good. So... This episode, I'm going to take your goldfish away. <laughs> don't, don't take my goldfish away. This episode's special because not only are y'all business partners, but you're married. So put that into constant. Yeah. <laughs> first, first married guest that we've had on the show. Maybe the only married guest that we've had on the show. This is going to be like half oil and gas startups, half Dr. Phil. Yeah, I, I was actually at the HX Capital event, and they said the number one of the number top reasons for failures his spouses doing it together. And I'm, I looked at Thomas and I said, maybe we should just call it quit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just stop it before it even starts. <laughs> That's yeah. too funny. So give us, uh, you know, before we start talking about y'all's backgrounds mm-hmm. and kind of leading up to this point, what is Unique Ventures? Is it Accelerator? Is it VC? Kind of give us some background on what you guys are doing. Yeah, the reason why we call it a hybrid accelerator is it's not a, a typical accelerator. Most programs will have companies, startups come in maybe for about three months, sometimes six-month program. They really work with them on, on kind of MBA type of materials, kind of getting them prepped up really for that, that pitch presentation. And then they kind of have a graduation, and they'll have either angels or VCs listen, and, and maybe they'll get some funding. That's a typical kind of incubator as well as accelerator. What we saw as a gap is – no one was really focusing on the startups and making sure that they're getting paired with actual customers. At the end of the day, money and capital really is not their, their big roadblock. It is getting that technology out to the field and piloted. And if we could get paid pilots for those startups and provide them a bit of working capital so they can maybe, you know, push off having to raise those capital funds, that was kind of the intent of the overall kind of hybrid accelerator model. I'll let you give your two cents, Thomas. Yeah. Again, coming from large IOCs, I mean, we saw the gap, correct? I mean, in terms of what we call the technology chasm, we spoke to numerous startups for a year at HTC when before it went defunct. And HTC itself was an incubator. They called themselves an accelerator, but it was sponsored by actually large IOCs. And what happened was at, at the end of the uh, ignition program, 
they basically didn't have a place. So they were all dressed up, no place to go to for a dance because they could get some funding, but not enough in terms of exposure to the industry. So we said, why don't we try to get pilots for them? And that's where we toyed with the idea and we brought that up with, at that time, Stat Oil. And very quickly, they... They, they saw that this gap was being addressed and they actually said, it's a bloody good idea, let's go ahead and, and start this alliance going. And then after that, then we, we met with uh, Anna Darko, who's also been a, a big champion as well. Yeah. And then has Slater followed. Yeah. And then, and, and in fact, actually, after the second alliance partner, we didn't actually have to sell it. It sold itself. I mean, they came to the meetings and they spoke. We just spoke for two minutes and then they took over and said, yeah, this is such a good thing come on in and actually join. So the intent is to have actually up to five partners. And right now we have three. And the reason we want to keep it small is because we actually spend a lot of time with the alliance partners in understanding what their, their needs are in terms of technology, how they want to, how shall I say, move the needle in terms of the margin. And then we go out and find the technology. But most importantly, actually helping them with the pilots. Because what we don't want is to bring a startup and leave them on their own devices because we work with them. So are you you're getting feedback from, you know, from the Anadarkos and the Hesses? And are, are you using that to drive looking for startups to solve those problems? Or are you also working both sides of the fence and, and finding these startups and then kind of like matchmaking them with the companies that also have the issues. It's, it's a little bit of both, right? Okay. In order for them to be an Alliance member, they have to, first of all, agree to, to collaborate and share their technology agenda. Mm-hmm. They don't have to collaborate on everything because there may be some, some parts of that technology that they're working on internally from mm-hmm. an R&D perspective, right? Do you feel them being pretty forthcoming about the issues that they're, they're oh, facing? Oh, yeah, they're, they're very forthcoming. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, listen, we're, we're working on this from an R&D perspective. You know, they're very open about it. Mm. The other thing was they had to be willing to share results from the field trials and pilots with each other. Mm. And the other thing was they were not going to take IP. So a lot of the MSAs that some startups end up signing is as part of that process, at the end of the field trial, they can't tell anyone I did a field pilot with Company X, right? And some of that technology that gets further developed while they're doing this pilot that company has IP rights. So we wanted to keep the startup as whole as possible too as mm. well to kind of bridge some of that gap. Yeah. I just want to add one small caveat to the sharing of the data. Now, they only share data what they're comfortable with, correct? I mean, it can be as simple as a thumbs up. We trusted the technology. Excellent. We love it. Of course, when you start talking about production data, nobody's going to share production data because, again, bottom line, they're still competitors, correct? But what they are comfortable with sharing, they will share. So one of the things that we liked about the Alliance, these three guys work very well with each other. So I think there is a saying that uh, the CTO of Hess actually uh, mentioned, a rising tide raises all boats. Mm-hmm. And, and based on that philosophy, I think the three, uh, we call them the three amigos, you know, work off each other very carefully. So is that something that you've seen change over the last, you know, five years or so where oil companies are more willing to kind of get into these consortiums and work together? Because, uh, I mean, I'm sure you guys are familiar with the blockchain group here in Houston, which you know, I believe Hess is part of and, you know, mm-hmm. some of these, you know, Statel or Equinor is actually running it. So there's, I think that what we're seeing is oil companies are starting to be a little bit more willing to work together. Is that 
I mean, well, do you guys see that? I would say it really has always been there. We've always had joint industry projects together, GIPs. There's Deep Star, which is an offshore technology, you know, uh, group of, you know, but these are the larger IOCs working together. I think that right now, because you have more momentum and focus, I think mid-caps are, are, you know, step below kind of the typical large IOCs, Exxon, Chevron, Shell, are willing to to step out and do something different. Yeah. Right? I think in terms of decision-making, correct? I mean, why did we gravitate towards the three, how shall I say, three companies that we chose? We, we chose it for a reason. One is because we had had background in IOCs and we know how the decision-making takes place. So here you have got the, I want to say, spirit of wanting to learn, wanting to improve, much faster. So in, in terms of decision-making, trying to do pilots, it's much faster. So again, it is, like I said, not everybody will join in, in that same foray. Some of them will say, hey, I still want to keep my competitive edge. And you need, like I said, some of the new players to actually start not being afraid and let the barriers down. So are you getting these three amigos in a room on a regular basis, or are you kind of working with them individually, and then they're kind of sharing results? Yeah. It's, the, it's, the lunch is ha- at Hess is better, so we go there. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but in fact, actually, we do meet with them every quarter, but the power is meeting them individually. And we don't meet them, just them. It is their whole team, correct, that supports them. And that's where you get traction because then you have a face to the organization that not only resides with the CTO, but the face of the people who are looking at the technology, testing the technology, and actually, you know, working with the assets. So, mm-hmm. so that's how we... You know, well, we had other people that, that we wanted to consider joining the alliance, but they, they would not be able to have that commitment. And we needed some, one, one focal person to actually who would be willing to work within the organization, actively involved. So it's very different. People say, oh, you guys are like, like Darcy. I said, no, 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 we're not. This is not where, you know, it's a, it's a membership and you go out and find me the technology and we'll, we'll gather once or twice a year and I'll, I'll give you a, a showcase of technologies. This is where they have to be actively engaged. We talk about the different aspects, what we see. We vet some, we bring some of the startups in front of the lights to present yeah. to get their feedback. I, I think one of the quality Unique Ventures provide is because we have actually more than 100 years of expertise. Yeah, Thomas has 80 of them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. Hopefully my, my, my dentures doesn't fall off. <laughs> but again, it is that quality discussion that we have. Correct. In terms of getting the started. So when you when you ask the question, you know, do we pivot? Correct. So a company might come with their view of what the value proposition is. And what happens is we have to rejig their value proposition to fit into Anadarko's frame of mind of what their value proposition. So I, I look at it as a Rubik's Cube, correct? You know, is what phase you want to show. You could actually bring in phase A to has and say, hey, do you like this? Oh, no, I, this is not the one. Okay, let me show you phase B. Oh, that one I want to try. So again, very often startups don't realize that the complexity in, in their value proposition is not a single answer. If you give me your value proposition in one line, I say it's bullshit. Go ahead and give me something different. Absolutely. So before we, I have a, a lot of questions, mm-hmm. a lot of things I want to dive into. Let's get y'all's backgrounds first. Let's let the audience know a little bit more about you guys. 
You start from. So obviously you have 80 years experience. So yeah. let's let's start back <laughs> yeah. in the 40s. His his first job was <laughs> okay. knocking knocking the woodpeckers off of the uh, wooden derricks back in the day. <laughs> yeah, that's right, exactly. So during my time at Spindletop, no, it's kidding. Uh, <laughs> yes, I've been 28 years in the oil and gas industry with Shell. So I've been a Shelly all my life. So I started with two and a half years drilling. So I smell pipe dope. It's different from the other type of dope. <laughs> but anyway, all the way to being a reservoir engineer, a corporate planner, that means doing business plans, then moving into being an internal shell consultant. So that got me to all areas like everywhere from Venezuela to Australia, Nigeria, working on projects as far as Salem. And then what we did was actually open up a technology center in India. And we wanted to actually tap into the uh, so-called knowledge and the talent in India. And we still do have that technology center. And then the last thing that I did was actually manage a $3.5 billion EOR project, offshore EOR project for Shell. So again, that culminates my 28 years experience. So it's been varied, everything from drilling to project management. So Did you ever do any work with Inventure Global Technology? Yeah, so that that's why we have the other half. She she'll tell you about the okay, Shell technology. All right, all right, all right. But, <laughs> but I did work with Game Changer, so that's Shell's internal so-called like equivalent to Chef Tech Ventures or Catalyst mm-hmm. program. Yeah, where there's technology built inside the R and D, and then we try to grow it within ourselves. And some of them actually from outside also, where technology comes in, and we try to provide. And, and that's a very structured process, correct? I mean, anything from two to three years before you see the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. So, so let's go to, rears, yeah. And yeah. talk about myself, <laughs> yeah. Kind of by background, I kind of consider myself, I guess, a, a finance kind of commercial person. CPA, law degree. I had experience prior to Shell, so I also come from Shell. So my, my background outside of Shell is kind of big four, EY, Anderson, working with, with energy companies. But within Shell, I worked a lot on the R&D side when we took technology kind of out of the labs, looking at different commercial models. I was with Shell also when we went into unconventionals in the early 2000s. So that was kind of doing field demonstration projects all over the world. Also was, you'll, you'll get the theme here, we were of the era or generation within Shell where you rotated a lot. So mm-hmm. you're expected to be a jack of all trades. So I worked with the Shell Gas and Power at the group, was involved in strategy, planning, portfolio management, investor relations. And then two years before we moved back to Houston, I was the global CFO for Patronus for their large unconventional acquisition in Canada. And then they started to build out the portfolio. So I was brought in for capability development within Patronus so that they can have some of the learnings from, from the ILCs. So let's talk about the interesting stuff. So when did you guys meet? How long have you been married? <laughs> I actually <laughs> met you, Thomas dating, at several. Yeah, no, we, we met at several different locations at Shell. So mm-hmm. I was at that time more of a demand-based person at Shell. So I would work with different groups, mm-hmm. and part of that time I worked with Shell Technology Ventures. Right, getting back to your inventure, and yeah. that's where I would say you know Shell did have success when we did things like expandable tubulars when we did commercial ventures. And yeah, the only reason that, I, was, I used to be a project manager for Inventure, yeah. so I was running expandables across yeah, yeah, the Western yeah. Hemisphere, and I worked with a team out of uh, Shell's R and D. They had a it was a new tap system, I think, that we ran it on Shell Perdido. So, you know, I figured that you guys had some yeah. exposure to that. Yeah, 
you know, but that's such a boring take on, on how we met. We are, <laughs> okay. okay, we want the juicy details. Come on. <laughs> okay, okay. It was one day at the photocopy machine. No, <laughs> no but again, you know, your your whole life, you you start in shell, you know, you, you, you tend to... We met in the office, actually, and, and basically she did not know how to photocopy, and I helped her. Let's tell the real story. You know, we were at the, the Bel Air Technology Center... I'd, I'd met him several times, and we would have occasional interactions. And we were having lunch, and apparently he said something insulting. And so all the ladies in the office made him come to my office and apologize. Well, I've been working in the oil and gas business all my life. But I guess he made some comment about the school I went to, that it must have been subpar or substandard. And so he had to come into my office and apologize to yeah. me. <laughs> Which is true. That was the first posting that I had to U.S. And I didn't realize that actually, you know, you have to be very politically correct in whatever you discuss, even during lunch break. And, you know, it was so, so constraining from the type of environment I grew up with. Correct? I mean, so again. Yeah. I tell you, if you're a startup, that you'll enjoy working with Unique. Thomas, yeah, yeah. Thomas seems to be a unique character himself, so I'm, I'm sure that's how they came up with the name. So how right? long have you guys been married now? I think this is like year 19. 19. 19. Feels like 39. Man. There, there is a thin line between love and hate. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. So what's the, what's the dynamic like? So you guys, you know, obviously you left Shell. Now you're doing unique ventures. Mm-hmm. Emmy, your CEO. Thomas, your COO. So how's that like in the in the work life balance, you know, working together and then obviously being married? Yeah. Well, I think I think we grew up at Shelf, so there was never really a a work life balance. Yeah. It's kind of uh, ingrained into your DNA. Mm-hmm. I, I still tease people, I'm recovering show. <laughs> I mean, you're just used to it. I mean, used yeah. to, to getting up early, working long hours. We work probably six, six yeah. seven days a week. Mm-hmm. We love what we do. I work a lot right now on the commercial side. I mean, it's hard to say. It's complimentary, but there's no one, even though I, I'm CEO or Thomas is CEO, we have a VP of technology development. When we look at companies, it's a full team effort. Yeah. I mean, even though I'm not a deep technical person, there might be something I ask from a technical perspective that may spur something that, that Thomas comes up from his kind of RE background. Or, you know, something that he might ask from a financial commercial standpoint that might spur something in me. So it's, a, it's truly a collaborative effort. Yeah. So basically, I do all the work and she just gets <laughs> the fame and glory now. But actually, we do complement each other in terms of, you know, I take care of kind of the technical side of it, where you need to get to the nuts and bolts of what the technology is. And Amy is very powerful in the way she tackles this at a CEO level, correct, of course, you know, she's looking at the end, end, end in mind. How, how do you actually commercialize this technology? So her commercial and, you know, marketing skills, because she has been, she has done it before, you know, with Shell Technology Ventures. So she, she brings that so-called life cycle approach. We tend to sometimes get down, bogged under the weeds, and, and, and Amy will come and say, I think this is a non-starter for one. And basically, we complement uh, each other. So how many people do you all have on the team now? So right now we have five. Okay. We won this joint. You want mm-hmm. to say something a bit more? on? Well, Ariane just joined us, and she'll be the kind of VP of strategy and marketing. And she comes, she's got a great oil and gas background. She had a large stint at Landmark. She also was an active advisor with Techstars. 
which okay. is a, a great accelerator yeah. program. Even mm-hmm. Equinor it was doing some stuff with Techstars overseas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then maybe very quickly, we'll just touch very quickly on the VP of Technology Development is Will Frazier. And, and he actually has been there for Chevron for about 30 years. So he's got experience everything from HSC, GTL. I mean, the last one was the technical manager for the GTL down in Australia. And then we got technology deployment, which is Jeff Tomlinson, and he has got Exxon Mobil experience and experience with other smaller startups, BHP, and Murphy, then he, Murphy's. Murphy. So he has got the street cred of what does it take to implement. So we actually complement each other, correct? So when a technology needs to be implemented in the asset, he's the guy who will be there in the asset, you know, talk with with the asset managers, you know, understand what it is issues that that can cause assets to shy away from providing that pilot so again you know if you can speak that lingo it is much easier well a lot of the startups they don't like jeff right yeah. and let's just be honest but but that's kind of jeff's role right mm-hmm. they come in and he will spit out exactly exactly what the operator is going to tell them right mm-hmm. about why the technology won't work or this is why i say it's a nice to have you know why I'm not going to put some piece of hard equipment into my operations. So it gets that startup to figure out how to fine tune that message and that value proposition because Jeff has been on the other side of the equation. Yes. Right. So I think yeah, he has he to really, play the bad guy. He has to he, play the he bad guy. He runs them to the ringer and then that helps them come That's over right. those objections mm-hmm. because they're going to see those. Some, on the some market, of the startups so. actually, the guys grown up men cry. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> you need some of that. Yeah. You, need, you need some tough loves. Yeah. Build some grit. So let's walk through what it's like for, I mean, are you guys actively scouting startups or do you have startups coming to you or is it a combination of both? Let's just say a startup comes to you guys mm-hmm. and says, we want to work with Unique. What is that process? Because obviously we have a lot of founders who listen to the show. So like, what does that process look like from okay. start to finish? Okay, great. So we developed a process and we call what we, uh, the, f- the first thing is first contact meeting, correct? Mm-hmm. Sounds very alienish, ish uh, but this first contact meeting is 30 to 40 minutes over the phone face-to-face or via a Zoom meeting. And basically, just tell us, what do you have? What is the product that you have? And then we ourselves internally discuss, you know, is this something that we want to take forward? If we want to take forward, then what we do is we have them fill a one-pager. And this one-pager actually is, is, a, is a kind of a PowerPoint slide that tells you everything from value proposition to their competitive analysis to their product itself. So in one page non-confidential data, they articulate what their entire product is. If you can't articulate that in one page, then you know that there's something not right with the the startup. But we take that one page then and we solicit with our alliance partners, hey, we think this is something that you can use. Of course, there's a lot of groundwork that we, we do with the startup, correct? I mean, not with the startup, but ourselves. Hey, is this something you know new? Is this something that is uh, applicable? So then we send this one page to the Alliance members, and then the Alliance member says, hey, I am now in the fascinated stage. Now I want to hear more. So we actually had yesterday two companies that is in the fascinated stage. We took to Hess, and they brought their subject matter experts. So again, the subject matter experts will ask a lot of technical questions. Now, then once you're done with that fascinated stage, they'll say, hey, guess what, Unique? Sign an NDA with these guys and do your health check. And our health check is basically based on eight drivers, correct? I don't want to go into the the details of it, but it's eight 
drivers everything from value proposition to commercialization of the product. If you can't articulate how you're going to be commercial in the longer run, then you know that they have not thought about it. Because what you don't want is a company coming to, to say, hey, give me a pilot. You give them a pilot, you, the pilot is successful, and then all of a sudden, I'm going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. I mean, and I'm sorry, the startup just fizzles out or has got different priorities. So we don't want that. So that's time, money wasted on the startup in providing that avenue of the pilot. Mm-hmm. So we have to do really good due diligence on whether they are going to be viable companies during commercialization. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in, not to interrupt Thomas, but because you have startups and founders listening, unlike you know like a VC or a, a private equity company, when you, you when you go in and to visit, because I've worked with them with startup companies, the intent is okay. You got five minutes, and you know it's yes or no. It's kind of a brutal. It's almost like a, a real true Shark Tank kind of episode. For us, the first point of contact is we want to make sure that we don't screen someone out that could be a valid technology. We're just looking in that first kind of point of contact. Is this something that's just completely way off base from what we know about our alliance partners and what they're looking at? Or is this technology too soon? They're not at like an MVP stage. You know, we have to get these guys out to the field, you know, preferably now or within six months? Or have we seen so many other technologies in this space and they're just not advanced? So it's kind of slowly weaning that down at that first point of contact and then the kind of jumping to, you know, the fascinated state that, stage that Thomas was talking about. Sometimes, you know, we, we talk to the SMEs, the guys talk to the SMEs and they, they work with the alliance partner and they said, no, we don't think it's right for us. But our team sometimes will push back. So we don't think that you've maybe looked at some of these other considerations. So it's not just about taking a tech company or startup and putting them in front of an alliance partner and and letting them come to that kind of their own conclusion. It's a collaborative yeah. Uh, yeah. discussion. It's, it's the challenge, correct? So the only reason we can challenge is because we do have that 100 plus years of experience and you say, hey, have you thought of that? So again... We have brought companies where initially they said no, and then we went back and actually modified the way they presented, correct? And then brought them back, ah, oh, okay, I like that. This is what I was looking for, correct? So it is an iterative. That's why we don't have too many partners in our alliance because we work with them closely. And five is, is, is kind of the... So an interesting point on the topic of commercialization. So you guys are focused on, obviously, the biggest operators, right? So that's, you know, who your three amigos are, Anadarko, Hess, Mm. and Equinor, all big companies. So you're focused on, can this technology be commercialized at an enterprise level for these big companies? Do you guys ever see you in the future helping startups with technology for the other thousands of EMPs or producers in American oil and gas? Because this is where the bulk of the market is. And, you know, this is kind of a... It's kind of a, a weird dynamic. So when you see an outside technology that wants to come in to oil and gas, Jake and I deal with these companies all the time. They automatically think of, you know, Shell, Chevron, BP, all, all the big companies. And that's who they start chasing. As you guys know, you're going to spin your wheels and fizzle out over time, almost guaranteed, right? Mm. And, you know, especially if you don't have the it's advisory services of yeah. someone, you know, of y'all's caliber that has the experience. So what about the other thousands of operators that are underserved that, you know, they don't have access to these technologies and there's a lot of technology being built for these 
these operators. Do you guys ever see you moving into that space or will you always kind of just focus on mm-hmm. your core group of mm-hmm. big operators? No, it's it's a given actually. The first point of contact is the alliance because they're the ones providing the bedrock for, for, for the pilots, of course. And then they're the first customers, correct? So we work once they're done and they're commercial, then, of course, we work parallel with all the other operators. I mean, whoever wants to. So that's part of the commercialization where you go into Series A and Series B. And, in fact, actually, one of the companies that we are working with, uh, Nash, actually, was approached by one of the IOCs and said, can you come? In fact, not one IOC, two IOCs. But we said, hold on, you know, we need to work with our alliance because the pilots are done within the alliance. So you, we need to let them finish that and then jump onto the bandwagon. Okay. Yeah, but I think, yeah, this first year is very, very focused on, you know, we have to execute and deliver. We're having conversations with overseas private equity because no one really has really focused and pushed private equity on this because they also are a large holder of all these small, smaller independents out there. Mm-hmm. And they're starting to, to look at investing in technology internally and developing their own like technology toolkit in which they can rapidly kind of apply to portfolio companies, companies, which makes a lot of sense. And then also we have startups coming to us and says, I've worked with a few independents. Now, you know, I'd like to now re-platform this and then grow this from from what I've done at a very, very small oil and gas company level. And Mm. we work with them. Or we try to find people, if we can't work with them right now, I mean, we want to get people placed in the right place in the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So, you know, do we know someone at another oil, smaller oil and gas company that might have the appetite to start with them? We'll watch and, and we'll wor- still work with them and kind of give them advice and see how they progress. Mm-hmm. And once they get to that certain stage, then, you know, then we can come in and, and take a more active role. Yeah, so there is no one formula that fits, correct? I mean, so we have to see how we pivot because sometimes the smaller oil companies don't have the breadth or the depth in terms of support to the startups. Yep, you're exactly right. One of the things that we've said a million times is that you know the bulk of the EMPs, like like Colin was mentioned, they don't have tech departments, they don't have IT departments. You're dealing with engineers and geologists and accountants, like they don't have a staff that's dedicated that could spend time with these startups, which is a huge issue, I think, within itself. But I don't really know what the solution is. We're hoping that the content that we put out is somewhat educational. That these guys can start to slowly educate themselves. Well, we've seen it, right? I mean, look yeah. how many oil companies that we have reach out to us that consume the content. So, yeah. it, you know, it, part of it's just providing a medium to where companies can start to get exposed to new technology and learn about it. So, yeah. so going back to you guys. So you said you're a hybrid. So we've heard all about the advisory services. You're also doing, you've, you've got a fund that's bolted onto it as well. Can you guys disclose any details on what you guys are looking for in terms of companies to invest in? Is it, you know, anything, are, are you guys allowed to invest pre-revenue? Do they have to be at a certain stage? Can you kind of shine some light on what y'all are looking for? We ourselves do pivots. And so when we first started out with, with this model, we wanted to do a, a more traditional VC, but at the end of the day, when we started to really take a look at this and the bolting on, the, you know, raising capital, right? We said, what, what do startups really, really need, okay? We need more pre-seed money for the startups, right? We have some really good hard science companies in town, in Houston, right? They need the funds to kind of get them to that next stage before they get out to that field trial. They might be lab kind of work mm-hmm. and funding. They might need a, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, right? It's really important to give them that funding. So 
we, we started with the kind of typical VC approach, and then we said, okay, no, this is not going to work, right? So right now we're, we're repackaging and we're looking. The two have got to be kept separate. This is where I think some people have made the mistake. You cannot mm-hmm. mesh an accelerator, okay, with operators and try to mesh a typical VC. You have completely different strategies. You have completely different timelines and objectives, right? Yep. Startup's going to lose out. Right at the end of the day. So right now we're we're we've got a group of kind of in development. I can't I can't disclose yet, but yeah. we're looking from a, a corporate sponsorship, and we've got lots of interest. You know, there's a lot of activity in Houston. We've got various trade organizations mm-hmm. from other countries mm-hmm. that are are heavily investing in technology that want to partner up. They can't participate from an alliance partner standpoint, but they see the value of developing that technology because if you think about it, as you start to scale up these startups and they they really are successful and they build up, they're going to want to go. from oil. There's some startups we see now, I say, okay, international markets, but they have to prove it out, that technology here in the U.S. So if we have corporate sponsors that are from an international scene, then that allows them then to kind of, you know, kind of have a, a first preview of how, how we get them over and scale mm. them from an international mm-hmm. perspective. So again, I mean, when we said about, you know, where is our feedstock coming from? Of course, I mean, Houston, U.S., is, is, uh, Canada is a, a good feedstock. But the international environment, you'd be surprised. I mean, the amount of actually talent out there, correct? So we are not country bias. So we'll we'll look at for technologies everywhere from Israel to Malaysia to Australia, for example. So these companies who are so-called trade organizations that sponsor us will also bring us technology companies that are looking to penetrate the U.S. market and looking for field trials, for example. So a technology developed in Australia for the unconventionals over there might say, hey, you know, I can't get a pilot there. Maybe, you know, it might be applicable over here. So so again, we're not being agnostic to countries. Well, there's a huge market for that, right? I mean, Jake and I started consulting on this last year because we noticed that there was all these emerging technologies outside of the United States that wanted to integrate into American oil and gas because the barrier to entry was lower. So you know, we just kind of on a whim started consulting on this and started landing contracts and having people reach out to us. And so, I mean, there's a huge market that people don't even, you know, when they think of oil and gas tech, they think about what's happening in Houston, Denver, Austin, Dallas, Silicon Valley. Are we going to recruit them then? Yeah. Uh, No, I've, uh, well, let's talk about this off record, (laughs) but I've already, like, I've been over here taking some notes of how we can work together. So Jake and I have been building something that I think you guys will be interested in. Oh, no, stop. (laughs) No, 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 no. I I just want to go back to what, real real quick, I mean, the point of, besides just the corporate sponsors, we wanted people to, you know, raise capital that understood the life cycle. First of all, they have to understand the oil and gas Mm -hmm. industry, right? And understand the startups and the length of time that it truly takes a technology company to grow and scale, Mm -hmm. right? A lot of people look at it from a three to five year time frame. No, you know, we're working with a start. We have a fiduciary relationship and a duty to that startup, right? To help them deliver and execute on, on where they want to grow and take this company. But we have to find capital partners that can invest in them that can align themselves with that strategy, right? Absolutely. And so we're, we're right now I'm talking to, to several private equity companies, some internationally based. They hold a suite of oil and gas assets. So they, they're looking at, I'm not trying to get multiples from the tech side, right? I like to invest at a kind of pre-seed level into companies. But if I can get access once they've scaled up, that's good enough because it's going to ramp up my multiples 
on my portfolio. So we're seeing really new trends mm. popping up. So that's really interesting on on that point. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you guys are connected with me on LinkedIn, but I always go on these rants about this gap in the market for pre-seed funding. Mm-hmm. And the other day I had a post. So there's a, a guy here in the Canon that's got a consumer product and the product is it's kind of like a five hour energy drink. You drink or you drink it while you're having alcohol and it's supposed to get rid of your, oh. your hangover the next day. And I mean, they raised two million dollars pre-seed. Mm-hmm. And that capital is so hard to access for oil and gas startups at the seed level. There's just not any infrastructure or a market there. So I always talk about that. And I, I made a post on LinkedIn about it the other day that went viral because it's such a big topic in the industry. And so there's so much opportunity there. What's interesting about the private equity front is that, you know, Jake and I talk to a lot of private equity groups and we've got a lot of advisors that come from private equity. So we kind of pick their brain on it. And the sentiment's always kind of been that private equity doesn't give a shit about new technology. All they care about is Mm -hmm. multiples on their portfolios. But then you talk about that angle where they're like, hey, we want to invest in seed, get these seed rounds, get these technologies going. And then if it can improve our multiples on our portfolio companies, then that's kind of the back end reward for them. So that's really interesting to think about. I think it's important. That was kind of my strategy, like towards the end of GDS, whereas I was actually reaching out to private equity companies and pitching them the product so they could use it for all the portfolio companies to drive efficiencies, obviously to drive returns. Well, you know what's hard is like if you go sell your technology or if you try to sell it to a private equity-backed operator, it's not really aligned with their mission or their goal because they're, you know, they want to develop and flip the asset. They don't really care about making it more efficient or the long-term strategy. So, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a hard sell for. It's important to understand the business model of the EMPs that you're selling into. Definitely. So you're not spinning your wheels. Yep. Because you're exactly right. hundred percent. So anyways, we're coming up on time to wrap it up. I want to give you guys opportunity. I want to know what are some goals that you have for unique in 2019? What are some goals that you're some things that you want to see happen in the ecosystem of Houston oil and gas or energy tech? We'll we'll wrap it up with that. I want to hear what you guys are looking to do and see. Okay, I think our number one goal, don't kill each other. Hey, I mean, y'all have made it 19 years <laughs> yeah. so far, so so far so good. <laughs> I mean, I think I have a, a couple. I'll give a couple of my rants, right? Definitely. I think I applaud, appreciate the ecosystem buildup. People need to understand it is going to take a very, very long time. So the people need to be asking, what are we going to do right now, right? Great, you're having more VCs. You're going to bring people down. But who is going to actually do the work with the startups, right? You can't helicopter in and out for these startups. People need to work with them day in and day out. And it has to be people from the oil and gas business who understand it, who know where and how to work with those organizations. Not enough people are asking, what do the startups need? That's my big kind of issue. We saw it at HCC. I've seen it in other forums. What does Houston need? Great. What do VCs need to come to Houston? Great. We know what oil and gas company needs. But what do the startups need in order for them to go to the next level? And you have a lot of people providing these startups advice, but it's very, very generic advice. Right? Mm-hmm. It will only take them so far. It'll kind of kind of get them going. They can, you know, get a general broad value proposition. But that's not enough to get them in with a customer. I'll let you go. I think, so how do you define success, correct? First, I mean, we we also just started. I mean, the ink is hardly dried. The first year, if we can actually get three to four technologies implemented or even at least piloted in the startups, that means that we add value to this so-called ecosystem 
through the uh, our alliance partners i think then we we consider ourselves successful because that shows that there is a light at the end of the tunnel because then startups say hey you know what going through unique ventures i am assured a pilot you know and then my idea of commercialization is there so we 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 cannot make any announcement yet but very soon in the next few days within this week there'll be a, an announcement of one of our companies that we actually took through this funnel so our first company and yeah Very cool. cool. So by the time this podcast launches, by the time you're listening to this, Unique will have some big news drop for implementation. I want to have you guys back on the show here and, you know, maybe towards the end of the year, Q1 2020, we can get an update and see how everything's going. Can people find you on LinkedIn? Are both of y'all on LinkedIn? Yes. We're on LinkedIn. We have okay. a website. Yeah. So if you want to find them, Amy Henry, Thomas Henry on LinkedIn with Unique Ventures. And Unique is kind of spelled unique. So it's not spelled the, the typical way. It's E-U-N-I-K-E. So, it's, so yeah, Unique so it's, Ventures. Yeah, so it's, it's Norwegian, correct? Uh, and it means good victory. Oh, okay. I so, like it. I like so, it. So, yeah. So, again, it's it's a play I, of words, but again. How'd y'all, how'd y'all come up with Me, it? after a couple he, of beers. He was coming up with, I, I said, you <laughs> have all, to have a short. All creativity is derived from some alcohol. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's a short name, and it has to have meaning, you know? Yeah, so. I like it. No. Uh, the other one, she threw it out. You know, I, I, I can't say it here. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. Well, guys, if you want to find Unique Ventures, we'll leave links to Amy and Thomas's LinkedIn profiles in our show notes and then a link to their website. Guys, it was great having you all on the show. Appreciate well, you taking the time. Thank you for having us. Yeah, yeah, thank you for having us. I mean, excellent guys. And now to talk about real business. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thank you. All right, guys, if you enjoyed the show, please take two seconds to leave us a rating or review on whatever platform you're listening to this on, uh, either iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. That just helps us a ton. Also, if you want to do like a send all to everybody at your company, just share a podcast episode and we greatly appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode. Come, 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 come.